We all remember books that sparked our imagination and love of reading as children. What role do these children's books play in our adult lives? And how can returning to childhood favorites re-spark and reinvigorate the joy of reading as an adult? How do we complicate and understand the lessons and questions children's literature is imparting through our adult lenses and learning? You know, life as a kid, for me personally, it was, there was joy, but there was a lot of pain. Um, and so it's sort of like now <laughs> there's, there's a lot of pain, the world's suffering, but there's joy to be found too. And I see the bridge between childhood and now is, is this, for me personally, this thing that I love, which was a book and finding time to read. Today, a journey into imagination, science, creativity, and the many ways we can complicate but find joy in the childhood classic, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. I'm Peyton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Rick Montalongo, one of my faculty colleagues and scholar brothers. Chief amongst Rick's wonderful personality characteristics are his optimism, hopefulness, and creativity. He always brings playful, whimsical, and insightful views to our conversations and work. He is also a spiritual person, and his love for humans, animals, and living is evident in his approach to life and today's dialogue. We recorded this conversation in July of 2020. I do appreciate you sending me this outline of your reading life, and I would be interested in hearing you talk a little bit about this journey of remembering your reading life and how you think about the history of your reading life. In, in reflecting on your question about the history, I started thinking about different phases of my life and everything went back to me being a child. Um, I really loved reading and it, it, as a, as a child and as a teenager. And even in high school, I was seen amongst my friends as sort of a nerdish, bookish type. And, you know, I went to school in the 80s where cliques and your hobbies were part of your identity. And so I was sort of that weird kid that, you know, I had friends that were the preps, I had friends that were the rockers, and the list goes on and on. But if they would ask what was Rick, you know, they would say, well, Rick's kind of like this um, quiet kind of nerdy guy. And, and so I thought about why that was attached to me. Well, especially in junior high and high school, I was really into like fantasy novels. Uh, I read, again, like Lord of the Rings, and, and I was really into space too. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, I really wasn't into fiction. I, re- I read a lot of things about NASA, astronauts, and and even in my high, even in high school, in my bedroom, I had pictures of the shuttle, and and things like that. And so my I friends knew, my friends knew I was really into space. But beyond that, I liked sci-fi novels. Um, yeah. I didn't really get into sci-fi TV shows. Um, but I got into um, anything sci-fi related or that dealt with space. So that connects to my college years because the reason why I started off my college years as a meteor, meteorology major is because I wanted to work at NASA, um, especially with weather-related things. I, I knew even at that time that weather is connected to rocket ship launchings and things like that. And it was sort of like a behind the scenes um, job or role in NASA. I didn't want to be an astronaut. I wanted to work, literally, I wanted to work in mission control, um, you know, doing weather forecasting and stuff. Well, one of the things that you sent me some notes about was just about actually your elementary school. And, you know, coming from a working class background, your teachers, Will you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah. You also sent me some stuff about the Texas Readers Club, and I'm really, I mean, you know, because I saw it on Instagram. I'm yeah. fascinated about all of this, these early ways that people get into reading. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the Readers Club, Texas Readers Club, and I sent you pictures about uh, with four certificates that for some reason were in a box of other school certificates but um, at least my parents kept those four texas reader club certificates that were in the elementary um, ages in fact the certificates were in the second grade the ones that were saved the second grade fourth fifth and sixth grade Mm -hmm. and and you know even the dates go back to 1975 and they're in pristine condition, by the way, which I thought was kind of neat, knowing that they were in a box in my garage. And so I thought about, like, you know, what did those certificates mean for me as a kid? And other than the joy, it made me, as an adult, reflect on how awesome my elementary school was and still is. It's still the Midway Park Elementary. Shout out to the Midway Park parents. Um, you know, the school is still there. It's still, I'm assuming, doing a wonderful job. And in my elementary age years, I had teachers that really encouraged not just me, but all students to read. And, and that was represented in those certificates because those certificates um, reminded me that it wasn't just like, a once during your six year event, it was annually uh, that you could work to get that certificate. And so thinking more about it, I started thinking about like, okay, how did I earn these certificates? And I can't quite remember how you got a certificate, but the one thing I remember vividly that the school really encouraged and the teachers really did a wonderful job doing was, not only awarding us to read, but giving us opportunities to read outside of the library and outside of this uh, school. And so I, I thought about uh, about these um, 
book purchasing clubs that the school and the school district, I'm assuming, um, participated in. And, and I remember as a kid, like, I think we got them like on Fridays, like every other week we would get like these little eight, eight and a half by 11 sheets that were sort of like a catalog. And I, I don't remember the company, but I remember getting those um, catalogs and in excitement going, oh, you know, what new book titles are there that I haven't read yet? And, and the teachers would be like, you know, get your orders in and, and, you know, we'll get the orders in so you can get your books. The one thing I remember, and this is important for my school because uh, my school to this day is surrounded by a blue collar working class neighborhood. I, I, I don't, I know, I know as a kid, I, I didn't really reflect on this, but as an adult, I now know why those um, book clubs were so important for the teachers, especially. Because I remember these books were like very reasonable. Like we're talking like maybe a quarter. And, and there were paperback books, little paperback books. Um, sometimes some of the titles were like 10 cents, 25 cents, 50 cents. And if you were really, you know, rich, quote unquote, you could spend a dollar on a series or whatever. And, and I just remembered like when, when I wanted to order these books, I would like literally at, at my desk, I would circle like, Ooh, I want to tell my mom and dad, I want this and this. And I remember I would take it to them and they would order them. Like it was within their, their pay range yeah. or their spending range uh, for them to buy me these books. And I would, like order like five, four, four of them. And so I think that 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 book club um, helped a working class neighborhood to afford, um, you know, classic children's novels and and the books that we all now know. Like I remember Clifford the Big Red Dog, I believe was a series of them. Uh, Beverly Clearly, uh, Cleary, the Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Ramona, I think the characters, Ramona and, and whatever, like all yeah. of these classic book series were part of that. And I read some of those. Um, do you remember, because you said that you were into sci-fi as a teenager, do you remember reading like in elementary school precursor sci-fi types of books or, or anything like that? Well, I remember those books also had, I guess you would call it like a nonfiction section. Like, you know, there was books on nature and things like that. Science, yeah. Science. And so my love of science, yeah, could have, could have started with those book clubs because, you know, I read the, you know, the children's novels, but in the section where there were titles about science, I would be like, oh, well, I want to learn more about that. And, and weather, especially, oh gosh, weather, any, any books about tornadoes, picture books about tornadoes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would, I would grab those up like, you know, immediately. And so, and, yeah, um, that was something that um, I think that book club really made an impact in my future scholar self. I, I'm sort of curious about, you know, these certificates that you saved, mm -hmm. I'm just interested in why do you think you saved them for all these years? I say, well, let me begin with my parents. My parents saved them because they really encouraged 
schooling and education for all of their children. Mm-hmm. And, and when we got these certificates, especially elementary school certificates, um, they knew not to throw them away because these were going to be uh, mementos to remind us that even at that early age, we loved learning. We loved school. And for me, in particular for me, you can ask my brothers and sisters, for me, I was the bookworm. And um, so my parents saved those certificates to remind who we are as kids, their children, uh, specifically our our, um, student identities at that time. And so uh, I think that my parents saved my certificates because um, it reminded, it reminds me that I love to read and books are always been part of my life. In fact, one of those certificates, the, even the teacher, I think, just was amazed that of the amount of reading that I did at that age. And I think it was the fourth grade certificate because on the back, um, it has 47 books. Like I, at that time, I guess that school year, I read 47 books. And I know those books came attached to that um, book catalog that I remember. And so I, I identify now to those certificates as, as a reminder that, hey, you've always loved reading during this quarantine, and maybe it's serendipitous or coincidental or whatever, but I think those certificates are, are spoke to me when I found them in the garage because it's like uh, telling me, you know, you started reading now for pleasure. Don't give that up once we come out of this COVID. Greetings to you, the lucky finder of this golden ticket from Mr. Willy Wonka. You're going to love this. Just love it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the chocolate room. I, I wanted a book that I recall bringing me like just pure pleasure. And, and I remember I read um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory probably more than once. Uh, it was my go-to book uh, as a kid that I, I liked reading the first time. And then the previous summer, I would be like, oh, let's get lost at the Chocolate Factory again. And I would pick up that book and read it, take it home and, and at that time, even watched the movie as I read the book. I know we're going to talk about the movie, uh, but it, it, it was just—it was just a book that just naturally emerged when I went through that process of um, my my reading life and why I love to read and how it got lost. And I wanted to reattach myself to that joy and pleasure part that I remember as a kid, because. You know, life as a kid, for me personally, it was, there was joy, but there was a lot of pain. Um, and so it's sort of like now <laughs> there's, there's a lot of pain, the world's suffering, but there's joy to be found too. And I see the bridge between childhood and now is, is this, for me personally, this thing that I love, which was a book and finding time to read. At the beginning, I went into this book title thinking about my first book, real book, quote unquote, that I read as a child and and starting that history that you asked at the beginning. 
But then I started thinking about this title through my adult lens and, and my current readings about spirituality, St. Benedict, the rule, monastic culture, and monks, and all this other stuff. And when reading it, I was, I was like, I was reading the book, this child's novel, and as an adult, I was like, holy crap, you know, this could be something deeper than what it is. And for example, um, there's a part in the book where Charlie gets a chocolate bar, and I believe it's his birthday. And with the hope of finding a golden ticket, it's not there, but he has a chocolate bar, and he knows the whole family is starving, literally starving. Yeah. And so Charlie doesn't eat the candy bar, even though his parents and his grandparents are saying, no, Charlie, eat it. It's yours. He's like, no, I want to share it. And he literally breaks off pieces of the chocolate and, and says, I want you to enjoy it too. When I read that part, um, you know, I'm Catholic and the books I'm reading is St. Benedict is, you know, rooted in the Catholic faith. I read that. And I was like, are we having like a, like a last supper moment here? Uh, where oh okay in, in interesting my notes, in my notes i wrote charlie is almost becoming a saint right at this moment and in fact in my notes i wrote he's becoming a boy saint where in his family literally he is giving pieces he's making an offering and he is passing the last piece of joy i guess or i don't know the last piece of joy he's 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 not being um, he's not being selfish, and in fact, he, um, he's being very um, aware of humanity at that time, and that this isn't just uh, this isn't just for me. It's my you know I know it's my birthday. It's a special occasion and stuff, but I have people who love me all around me, and and they should share in this joyful moment as well. We didn't get to go to ticket. I mean that would have been fantastic, but you know let's let me share a bit of me with my family. Okay. That's like such a fascinating reading of that little segment of the text. I think the thing that I was just struck by in the front part of the book, Rick, was the way that doll, I want to talk about the family and I want to talk about the extreme poverty that these people are living in. I mean, they are, poor, poor. And there's a particular chapter where the father, Mr. Bucket, loses his job at the toothpaste factory. And he's, he, he becomes a snow shoveler. Mm -hmm. And they literally are starving to death. And they have this whole terrible scene of Charlie losing all this weight and there's there's a terrible line about there's this terrible line about Charlie oh yeah it's on page 40 of the book you know he began to make little changes here and there in some of the things that he did so as to save his strength mm -hmm. to prevent exhaustion yeah i just found it like terrible awesome. what these it people is. were going through in fact, the, the title of that chapter, and I wrote in my notes on page 37, the chapter 10 the, is titled, The Family Begins to Starve. 
And so you have yeah. to read nine chapters previous to that to follow the the perils of this very impoverished family. And and at when you reach chapter 10, it's it's almost like a breaking point. Um and so in that chapter, I, I thought that chapter was so sad. Like even the even the illustration on page 41 is is so sad. And I'll tell you why that illustration is so sad, because it, it's described in the book. You know, Charlie is starving, and like you said, he's losing weight. He's pretty much skin and bones. Yeah. Um, he's walking through a street. He's cold. He probably doesn't have a good coat. There's snow, and I, and I picture like slushy, ugly, gray snow. Yeah, terrible. You know, not the pretty white, fluffy snow. But Charlie is like, you know, trying to just figure out like, you know, where's the next piece of food coming? And what's striking in that chapter is he's walking through the street and adults don't even recognize him. And it made me think about like in our current times, what would we do? I mean, I know when we see homeless adults um, in urban areas that we tend to pass them by. We don't, we don't want to hear their story. Uh, but if it's a child, would we do the same passing by? Because in this chapter, the adults, even the illustration, you know, poor Charlie's bent over looking at the slush. And in the illustration, I'm assuming there's two adults. One, if you notice, one, I'm assuming with a bag of groceries, passing by and ignoring Charlie. Um, you know, Dahl, if you read Dahl's novels, they're not, you know, they're very dark. <laughs> And, and this, this book really stuck out for me, even as a kid, you know, reflecting back as a kid, reminding me that the world is, is a very, can be a very cruel place, especially for children. Yeah, I was sort of struck by, there's, there's a picture like a couple of pages before the one that you just talked about. It's on, oh, it's just two pages before on page 39. And I think this is why I, I read this book as a a sort I don't I don't know if it's an indictment or if it's just a questioning. It's like really is the only way that you're gonna survive in this structure through luck? And that's the question that I kept thinking of is I was like, oh, it's just luck that he finds a a dollar in the sludge on the on the road. It's just dumb luck that he finds this golden ticket, right? That he buys the second candy bar yeah. after he finds the dollar. And I don't know, like, what does that say about our society that you have to survive to a certain extent on luck? Like you're not, society is not going to take care of you. Isn't that fascinating how, as adults, we, we, we put on our adult lens and we start making sort of the societal critiques about uh, this and that. Um, but as a child, like, I'm trying, you know, I was trying to get into my childlike perspective on how do I, you know, how do I read these issues and how do I view these issues as like a third grader, for example. 
um, why didn't the chapter, you know, Charlie's family begins, starts to starve? Like, why didn't that startle me? <laughs> and, and so, you know, you're asking, like, everything is possibly by luck. And is that the message? Is just sort of stick it out and possibly luck will kind of come your way? I mean, in a way, that is one message. It it is fascinating. I because because what a couple chapters later or someplace in the book, you get to this point where you realize that the town itself must have been employed by the factory. And you know, Mr. Wonka at some point fires all of the employees because uh he's concerned about spies. And I don't know, I just, I think about, so you can't help but read it through, you know, like dying Rust Belt towns, you know, this corporation is in the, is in the town, this giant factory, but nobody in the town works for the factory because it's, it's really a, um, you know, it's a children's book, but you wonder what is it teaching children about the way that capitalism works? What is it, what is it teaching children about the way that you survive when the factory fires everybody and you just survive by, you know, dumb luck? I was fascinated by this. Uh, there are five children in this book, right? And it, so it, it read to me almost like, this read to me as like, oh, this is like a play, right? It's like a mm-hmm. drama where, you know, here are the five characters that you need to know about. And I think you wrote, a, I think you said something about this in your notes yes. to me that, you know, the, 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 the adults, the parents, they're there, but they're not really... But I, he's painted here on this page as he's labeled the hero. Mm-hmm. So even, you know, regardless of how you want to talk about how Dahl is setting these characters up, you know, religious reading, uh, other type of reading, painting him as a hero makes this almost a like mythological tale type of a thing. Mm-hmm. He will be the person who despite all the contra- you know despite all the trials that is put before him he is going to end up becoming the hero of the story at the end yeah and it's funny that you know when you said that i was thinking again going back as a child who loved to read and the books i preferred which was adventure type novels um yeah in a way this book is an adventure it's a journey and any books, like if you look at like Greek mythology and exactly those tragedies, you know, those those characters go through a journey and on the journey to achieve a quest, um, they are tempted like the kids <laughs> um, that are in the cast of this book. And the hero usually is observing the temptation but the hero can go one way or go the other 
And in most cases, they go the other way because they are good people. Well, and I'm even thinking back to like when I took Greek, myth- Greek and Roman mythology in college. I don't remember any of the hero characters being children. No. All the heroes were adults. Another thing too, when I read, because I have this in my notes too, how the children in the book, and again, Dahl says there are five children in this book. It's very straightforward. Yes. And everyone hopefully should know the five kids, you know, Augustus Blue, Veruca Saw, Violet Beauregard, Mike Keevy, and Charlie Bucket. Mm-hmm. And he has these little descriptions underneath each of these children. Mm-hmm. And Augustus, greedy, Veruca, spoiled, Violet, chews gum all day, and Mike TV. And so part of me is like, in a way, they're almost like the seven deadly sins. <laughs> uh, oh, for sure. I mean, all of these children have vices. Yeah. I mean, there's only five, and obviously one of the five is a, is a good virtue to have. But the others are just like so horribly described. But, and again, we have to go back as kids. Like reading, reading this, say, like maybe in the late 70s, early 80s. Well, yeah, probably for me in the late 70s. Like, who hasn't, as a kid, been gluttonous, like getting the chocolate or, or we all know, maybe even our siblings, someone who was spoiled. Um, I didn't, I never really chewed gum, but I remember back then as a kid, yeah, gum chewing was uh, seen as a horrible um, thing to do, especially in school, like I, when I was in school, the teacher used to tell you, take your gum out, put it behind your ear. Um, well, and, and ju- not to interrupt, like I want to hear the rest of these, but, you know, that character in particular, so that's Violet. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's also a gendered reading to that, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's very unladylike for you to be chewing gum. Cause in that chapter where she's described, you know, it's like she's chomping and she's blah, you know? And, and so there is like a way that that gets built into the storytelling. Yeah. And Mike TV. Well, of course, my very favorite pages of the whole book, pages 139 and 140 through 141. Out of all the Oompa Lupa songs, uh, this one in the book. Now, the book Oompa Loompa songs are a lot different than the movie versions. Oh my gosh, they're so different. Yeah, they're they're poems, actually. But yeah, Mike TV's one was my favorite for obvious reasons. Yeah, I love it. It rots the senses in the head. It kills imagination dead. It clogs and clutters up the mind. It makes a child so dull and blind. He can no longer understand a fantasy, a fairyland. His brain becomes as soft as cheese. His powers of thinking rust and freeze. He cannot think he only sees. And of course, on page 140, this is a podcast about reading. We're going to talk about why Dahl says that reading is the best solution to any problems. They used to read. They'd read and read and read and read and then proceed to read some more. Great Scott Gadzooks. One half their lives was reading books. The nursery shelves held books galore. Books cluttered up the nursery floor and in the bedroom okay, by the I bed. Talk, can I interrupt real quick? Yeah. Because I underlined this. Notice how the nursery shelves held books galore. 
as kids. Like, right? Am I reading that correctly? Yeah. What, if, you're, if you're a toddler, like, you need to read. You need to start, read. It starts there. And so I think Dahl's kind of giving like a little reminder to kids that are reading this. It's like, your parents read to you as kids, as babies, you know, don't, don't give that up, basically. Well, and, you know, we have to contextualize the book. And I, I really want to get into some of the, like, the science parts of the book. Yeah. Um, because, you know, this was originally published in 1964. And it's kind of the period when everyone started freaking out about suddenly everyone had a television. There was televisions in every home, you know? Um, so the way that like technological advances were disrupting traditional activities like reading is part of the way that you can read that particular story. And I think about now, like with the advent of, you know, iPhones and iPads and all this other kind of stuff. And we, we, you know, we just go through these periods where we, we freak out that people are going to stop reading. We assign a certain level of morality to reading, honestly. Um, I know I certainly do. So I was just reading this through that particular time frame and being like, well, of course, you know, we're afraid that people are going to stop reading books and they're going to, you know, sit their butt in front of the television all day. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. So shines a good deed in a weary world. I do want to talk about the Oompa Loompas. Yes. What do you think about these characters in the story? The way that again, they're written in the book. Yeah, again, there's the child's view and then there's the adult view. And let me start with the adult view first. Um, and so, yeah, reading reading this is um, through the adult lens. Yeah, it's it can be very problematic in terms of like, okay, who, who what are the Oompa Loompas representing in terms of, looking at society through today's lens, especially workers at a factory, and knowing that they came from some sort of indigenous culture. And so the list goes on and on. And, you know, I know Dahl comes with some challenges and some critiques of like his background and his anti-Semitism and things like that. And so, you know, was that his, intent and i know you provided another story where doll wanted the character of charlie to actually be a young a little black you know young black boy and so you know how where where was he at in, at that time with his character developments and why do oompa loompas are sort of like in the world that's very realistic that somewhere in this world is oompa loompa land uh, that we have to save, and and you know Wonka is the savior to this um, group. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I even read that in an earlier version of the book. Not only, you know, Dahl's wife said that he originally wanted to paint Charlie as a as a little black boy. Um, you know, we could talk about that. What I'm more interested in was that I think in that same story, it said that originally, in the original version, the Oompa Loompas were actually sort of African pygmies. And this... You know, the language in the book about the Oompa Loompas is quite disturbing from, we can read it multiple ways. You know, you can read it as slavery, you can read it as colonization, you can read it from a sort of docile worker perspective. You can even read it as child labor because the way that the Oompa Loompas are portrayed in the book is as these sort of childlike, naive characters, right? They're painted as they laugh at everything. You know, they sing songs, they dance and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, I just, uh, even the language of like on page 68, you know, uh, Willy Wonka is talking about how he imported the Oompa Loompas directly from Oompa Land or from Loompa Land. On page 71, I smuggled them over in large packing cases with holes in them, and they all got here safely. They're wonderful workers. They all speak English now. They love dancing and music. They're always making up songs. I must warn you, though, that they are rather mysterious, or mischievous, I mean. You know, it's it's troubling because it, you know, that's slavery. Yeah. It's, uh, Uh, so it's it's both and, of course, but. Yeah, and. And how, especially in the movie version, how the Oompa-Loompas are sort of the most beloved characters in the book. But when you are in the movie, in the movie. Least, but when you read the book, and especially if you're an adult reading the book, and even if you're an adult reading the book to a child, um, you know, yeah, there there come some questions on like, you know, who, what exactly are the Oompa-Loompas? And, and even in the factory, they're still sort of uh, quote unquote primitive. You know, they're, you know, Wonka is literally building his business success on the backs of the Oompa Loompa labor. So, oh, right. Yeah. He doesn't pay them, right? Like, there's yeah. the whole thing about, he feeds you know, them. he pays them through food and yeah. shelter. Right. Exactly. And, and they are painted as primitive in the book. This is not in the movies, yeah, they, but in the book, they wear like, little straw like like little straw like uh leaves and they're they're dirty and you know all and i was just like this is they don't leave the compound (laughs) they don't leave the compound they're Uh, just there so it's it is really a part of the book that you're like wow but then again you can kind of paint the oopaloopas as they're they're the ones that keep the factory and the innovation going because remember there's something about them. They're also very intelligent. I mean, who's in the testing rooms? It's the Oompa Loompas. And, you know, Mike TV is sort of symbolic of the, the rise of technology, at least at that time the book was published, and the dangers of technology. Well, guess what? The Oompa Loompas were in charge of the technology in the TV room, and they were warning Mike TV, like, stay away from this. This is dangerous stuff. But guess what? It was a, you know, it was a mischievous child, not the Oompa Loompas that were uh, 
suffer the consequences of that particular testimony. So yeah, they're they're interesting characters, but they're they're portrayed much differently in the book than in the movie. What you are witnessing, dear friends, is the most enormous miracle of the machine age. The creation of a confectionery giant. Who wants who wants an who wants an ever who wants an everlasting who wants an everlasting gobstop? Who wants an everlasting gobstop? So what about all the science stuff in the book? All the inventions, all the imagination. And that was, that is an area that I loved. And I know as a kid, I loved as a, someone who appreciates the movie with Gene Wilder. Mm -hmm. I loved sort of science being imagination in that um, imagination can create wonderful things. And the thing I love in the book and, what I appreciate all doing is how imagination and science working together can create things, you know, that are not possible or, or my favorite, let me find the chapter. Um, you know, he creates a candy that I forgot was in the book and it's not in the movie. And I wish it was in the movie. He creates square candies that look round. Oh, the round. Yes. So when you read the chapter, it's like square candy, square candies that look round, and round being the shape. And there's a really cool illustration of the, the square candies that look round. Um, and so, you know, they they go in and they go into this room and, you know, they're like, well, these are candies. They don't look round. They're square. And like Veruca is the one who's like, really causing a ruckus, like, you know, you're lying, something like that. <laughs> but it turns out that they are square, but they look round. And I'm, you know, giving a little bit of the plot away, <laughs> little eyes pop open and they're looking around. And so to me, that was a brilliant example of imagination and science. Like science has a sense of humor. Uh, science is imaginative and so yeah you know science objectively it's it's square but when you put a little imagination in it you know we turn we turn a problem or we turn an object into something that you least expect it and so I think we're all familiar with all the Wonka treats you know the everlasting gobstoppers and you know in the movie the lickable tasty wallpaper and stuff but reading the book again, I was like, I didn't remember the, the square candies that look round, but again, Wonka is a genius and he was able to create a square candy that had eyes that look around. <laughs> oh, the book is the book is so much more fabulous in this regard than even the the movie. Yeah. I mean, I remember in the movie the lickable wallpaper, and I feel like you know, this is some of the stuff that in the movie that, you know, clearly the director took some liberties with switching the story around. Cause like the fizzy lifting drink in the book is just like a room they pass by. They don't really even stop in the room. Of yeah. course, in the movie, there's like this whole scene with the fizzy lifting drink and they go, you know, they get stuck on the ceiling and all this kind of stuff. The inventions are really fascinating. On, on page 120, there's like a whole list of these types of things. You yeah. know, I want to just point this out for people who've never read the book. You know, there's a rock candy mine 10,000 feet deep. 
coconut ice skating rinks, strawberry juice water pistols, toffee apple trees for planting out in your garden, exploding candies for your enemies. Little vicious, okay? <laughs> um, but, you know, okay, there it is. Mint jujube, mint jujubes for the boy next door. They'll give him green teeth for a month. Cavity filling caramels, no more dentists. Wriggle sweets that wriggle delightfully in your tummy after swallowing. Invisible chocolate bars for eating in class. Candy-coated pencils for sucking. Magic, head, magic hand fudge. Rainbow drops. There's even in other parts of the book, you know, things that I found really fascinating, like this, this candy that he developed that helps you grow hair back. Yeah. Ice cream that doesn't melt in the heat. It's really, you know, it's, it's wonderful to think about, you can imagine all of these things that would make the world better or that would make the world more delightful and you can invent them. That part of the book to me is, is really lovely because it is about imagination, yeah. but it's also about invention and thinking outside the box and that nothing oh. is impossible. Yeah, in in the last quote you said, nothing is impossible, is sort of a key quote uh, that Wonka says near the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know his specific products, they're they're fun and and again they're products that adults would say that's impossible to make, but for children, it would be like. I want that, I, you, you know, I want the chalk, the ice cream that doesn't melt in the heat. And so Wonka is, is mindful of his audience there, dare we say, his, his, his consumers. And, and the crazier the product is, the, the more that children would appreciate it, but adults would question it. And isn't that what science is all about when you think about it? Well, yeah. and in fact, like, I think, and you pulled this quote out, okay, it's on page 151. You wrote, you said, key paragraph. You'll read the quote that you put here. This is when he's giving the, char- the chocolate factory to Charlie. So he's speaking to Charlie. Listen, Mr. Wonka said, I am an old man. I'm much older than you think. I can't go on forever. I've got no children of my own, no family of my own. So who is going to run the factory when I get too old to do it myself? Someone's got to keep it going, if only for the sake of the Oompa Loompas. Mind you, there are thousands of clever men who would give anything for the chance to come in and take over for me, but I don't want that sort of person. I I don't want a grown-up person at all. A grown-up won't listen to me. He won't learn. He will try to do things his own way and not mine. So I have to find, I have to have a child. I want a good, sensible, loving child, one to whom I can tell all my most precious candy-making secrets while I am still alive. So, yeah, I, I said that was a key paragraph because sort of the innocence of a child and how a child would look at all of these inventions and innovations as something that is precious, whereas adults would go and see it as a commodity. You know, let me, let me go sell this and 
patent it and, and sell it to others who want to make their own versions of it. And so I think there's something to be said in that paragraph that I think the author through Wonka is telling kids that, you know, you, you see the world differently than I do. And, and I think keep that, you know, I, during that time this book was written, I mean, I'm sure a lot of things were happening in the world. And, you know, Gall is, is using an adult, although a very eccentric adult, uh, but he's using the voice of an adult to tell a child and to tell his child readers that I don't trust adults. I trust you. And if I give you the factory, I know you're going to keep the secrets. You know, we, we got to value imagination and, and to cherish it because if we don't, um, others are going to take it away from us. Yeah, I mean, I like it because I think it's this idea of adults lose all of their imagination. Yeah, exactly. And, and children don't. And even even reading currently as an adult this book, um, any any description about all the different types of candies just still brings like mm-hmm. um, a sense of wonderment. Um, and asking yourself, it's like, well, can can that still be made? <laughs> I'll be fascinated to you know to eat a, or to chew a piece of gum that comes in a five course meal, you know. <laughs> You know, we started this conversation out with you talking about the joy of reading and the fact that when you were telling the story about, well, I thought about, you know, maybe I'm going to choose these books from college that were really impactful, or maybe I'm going to choose these books, you know, or I read for work, right? And work reading is not necessarily always enjoyable. Um so how have you reconnected with this with the joy of reading during this time? Why like how do you think about reading as a joyful activity? I well again it's 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 fascinating to see and to learn how children's literature especially is almost as deep as sort of your Pulitzer Prize winning novels. Uh, children's literature is, is, is something that I think we should all either return back to or, or to read <laughs> um, in our, to put on our bookshelves because, uh, you know, going back to the Texas Reader's uh, certificates from my elementary schools, I haven't read any of the books that the authors like Sperry Armstrong. Um, I had the names written somewhere in my notes, but like I remember Perry Armstrong and some others. I I don't know what they wrote about, but in children's novels, um, there are deeper messages that we have to look at and everyone can interpret them differently. And at this moment of time, to be that I'm reading a lot of spirituality things and and putting that lens on as I read a children's novel is just a fascinating exercise because it's like 
I don't, I didn't even see Charlie in this way, even in the movie. And now it's like, holy, holy crap. Like this is, this is sort of like some intense, deep stuff. Well, I love the book. I love that you chose this book. I remember way back when we were starting this quest several months ago that you said that I was going to be surprised by your book choice. Yeah. And I think I it's took, a, I took a gamble. I mean, like I, I think said, think it's I, wonderful. I, I, I know about your podcast and your plans, but I was like, what book can I pick? And, and I, I, like I said, it was sort of a journey just selecting it. But part of me is like, let me throw a little curveball at you for this. And, and like I said, in, in talks with you, it's like, I, I really do feel like this was a book that put me on my journey of like being, being a good person, uh, being an inquisitive mind, and even to this day, being creative. I, I love creativity. Rick Montalongo is an associate professor of educational leadership at Sam Houston State University. Rick teaches graduate level courses in higher education administration, higher education leadership, and developmental education administration. His research interests include Latinx college student organizations, diversity issues in higher education, and spirituality in higher education. He also studies critical digital pedagogy. He has 20 years of professional administrative experience in student success, academic advising, and trio programming. Rick is an avid runner and currently is a half marathon coach for Bay Area Fit, a Houston area running club. You can contact Rick via email rxm059 at shsu.edu or follow him on social media on Twitter at rmontelo on Instagram at rmontelo0102 and on Facebook. You can find his personal website located at rickmontelongo.com. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account, at rhizoreader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play where you can also listen to the unedited version of my conversation with Rick. We discuss the joy of reconnecting with reading during the COVID-19 quarantine, additional ways to read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory from a spiritual and religious perspective, Charlie's character development, 
Dahl's macabre storytelling, the consequences the children face in the book, and learn more about Rick's childhood memories, including watching the Concorde take off from Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episodes link of our website, www.risoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolowski, copyright free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peyton, and this has been the Rhizomatic Reader. Thank you.